I'm Sean McCormick, and this is Optimal Performance. You go into two and a half years of social isolation, and these, just like weightlifting, if you don't exercise social muscles, they atrophy. It's a mess. 96% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional. You can't learn emotional intelligence, but you can learn emotional competency. And emotional competency comes down to three basic skills. Emotional self-awareness, emotional self-regulation, and the last is empathy, cognitive and affective empathy. That, everyone, is Doug Knoll. He's a mediator, author, speaker, and visionary, and he has written an incredible book called De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. You know, a couple of times a year, I will record an episode with a guest and immediately want to share it with everybody that I know, and there are so many tools in this episode that will make your life better. You will be a more effective communicator. You will be a better parent, a better spouse, a better coworker. These tools around communication and de-escalation are evergreen. They will undoubtedly improve your life for the rest of your life, and that is not an exaggeration. In this episode, we talk about how a researched-backed strategy for emotional growth works. We'll talk about the steps toward de-escalating someone who is arguing with you. We talk about why people are so angry today. We talk about how all conflict is emotional and this magical power of affect mirroring. And we explain all of it, how to do it, where to use it, why it works, all of it. We talk about the importance of honoring your own and others' emotions. Man, this one is packed. I'm so excited to bring this to you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is some of the most groundbreaking communication strategy that I've ever heard. And as a coach, I love this stuff. And if you you ever have to talk to people, you're going to want to use some of these techniques. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Doug Knoll. Welcome everyone to the Optimal Performance Podcast. My name is Sean McCormick. I'm a life coach, performance coach, wellness entrepreneur, and it's my pleasure to bring to you every single week the world's leaders in the field of performance so that you can live your life at its most optimal level. Plus, cutting edge ideas so that you can stay ahead of the curve in an ever-changing world. Let's dig right in. And we're here with Doug Knoll, lawyer to peacemaker and visionary. Doug, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Hey, Sean. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Me too. You have you have such a, a, a wide talent stack. So I, I'm, I'd be careful to like zero in on one little thing. But I do want to talk about de-escalation because it seems to me like people are more fired up than ever. Uh, easy to flip out pissed off for, for no reason or small reason. Uh, so I guess my first question is, do you, do you see that people are, have shorter fuses uh, now than they did say five years ago, 10 years ago? Hmm. I think this is a trend that's been going on for 40 years, at least 40 years. Uh, when I was practicing law, I started practicing law in the, 19, in the late 70s. And even then we were beginning to see the end of civil discourse in the legal profession, and it accelerated during the 22 years that I was a practicing lawyer. And I think what we're seeing now is just an amplification of that effect due to a, a huge number of causes um, and a breakdown in our educational system, the advent of social media, instant messaging, instant communication, a lack of personal responsibility and accountability on everything in life, uh, lack of critical thinking skills, uh, you know, the tribalism that is being perpetuated by people who are trying to protect their own power and position and privilege, and instead of leading us to our higher selves, are leading us into hell. 
because to them it's power. Uh, so you've got this confluence of all these things. And then the pandemic, of course. You go into two and a half years of social isolation, and these, just like weightlifting, if you don't exercise your social muscles, they atrophy. And, you know, it's a, it's a mess. It is a mess. I like the idea of exercising your social muscles because if you don't, they atrophy. And I want to kind of drill down on that a little bit. It seems to me that the ability to deescalate is like a superpower. You know, the, the, the people who communicate the most effectively, who can be persuasive, really do get what they want more frequently. Can you elaborate a little bit on this idea of, of the atrophy of, of social skills? Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, issue for me as a peacemaker because all conflict is emotional and almost all conflict arises from the inability to listen and to, and to communicate clearly. So when we talk about the atrophy of these skills, what we're talking about First of all, we have to start off with the idea that the baseline is very low. 96% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional. And they raise emotionally dysfunctional adults. And for some people can cope with that and they lead reasonable lives. Other people can't cope with it at all and they're miserable. Um, I read an interesting quote uh, from uh, the guy who wrote the four-hour work week. Uh, Tim Ferriss? Yeah, there you go. He said, I've never met a centimillionaire or a billionaire that was happy. Uh, and so we have all of this culture, cultural and societal stuff that where we're not taught how to be social. It's just expected that we're supposed to pick this up. But the fact of the matter is these are skills that have to be learned and practiced like riding a bike. And it really hasn't been until the advent of neuroscience that we understood why this is. And, and, and what we've learned in the last 20 years is, is earth-shaking. And that is, as human beings, we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. What makes us human is not rationality, it's our emotions. We're the only species on the planet that has emotion. And when you think about that, and then you think about how our culture puts down emotion. Emotions are bad, they're evil, they're weak, they're irrational. And you, and you get educators who teach us that we have to be rational. And we get theologians who teach us uh, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. He was the one that constructed the Catholic theology, wrote that the only way to get to, to heaven is through reason. And as, an, as a footnote, he said, women can't reason which is the justification for a whole bunch of abuse in the, in the Catholic Church. Um, but it's that kind of myth that's been, been perpetuated for, for, for many thousands of years so that when we get into a stress situation like we're in now, and right now in particular, we've got a pandemic, we've got political polarization, we have uh, a war going on in Europe, we've got an economy that God knows what's going to happen to it, and all this stress and all these problems compress and if we don't haven't been trained in the capacity to how to deal with it and how to communicate about it then we revert to what we learned as children our reactivity mm. and so that's what we're seeing and so when you see people fly off the handle it's it's just that they don't have the training to be emotionally self-aware enough to be able to self-regulate and so they just revert back to where they were at four years old and you see this all the time. That's why you can see a 45-year-old acting like a six-year-old. Well, he is a six-year-old in that moment. And that it's a real problem. 
keeps me busy, but I mean, <laughs> it's sort of a sad thing. You'd love to see a peacemaker like me be out of business, but it's not happening. Yeah, not anytime soon. You've got lots, yeah. lots more work to do, Doug. As you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about situations that I've been in, and I think all of us have been in, where they they disagree fundamentally with with someone, either <laughs> on the internet, anonymously, or um, you know, with with your full identity showing. And it's it's sometimes it's tough to communicate with someone that you find unreasonable and you may, you yourself may be unreasonable, but you can't see that because you're 98% emotional anyway. So you don't really realize where you're being unreasonable, but it seems, it seems that it's, it's really challenging to get, to know the skills, the techniques, the strategies to come to an even keel, even if that's the goal to have just a, a productive conversation at all with someone who is presenting as as either emotionally volatile or unreasonable? Uh, so walk us through a little bit about that that pinch point where you've made up in your mind this person can't be reasoned with, but I still have to talk to them. Okay, that's really a great takeoff point. Uh, first of all, when we use the term reasonable, we're making the assumption that the other person is rational, reasonable and rational, reasoning, rationality, synonyms to a large degree. And in fact, they aren't reasonable. They're just emotional. So we use the word, oh, you're just being unreasonable. That's a pejorative. We're judging and criticizing and putting somebody down because they are not reasonable, rational. And, that, and, that, and since we're not rational beings, why are we judging people on this thing of rationality? So the first, in, the first shift, mind shift we have to make is that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And therefore, every behavior I see in another human being is never going to be reasonable. It's never going to be rational. It's always going to be emotional, every single time. And that means that I can't solve an emotional problem with logic and reasoning. I have to solve it with an emotional tool. Mm. And that's the, that's the mind shift you have to make. Once you make this mind shift, everything shifts what was looked like chaos and confusion and craziness now makes perfect sense. Oh, they're emotional. I get it. And I got the tools to deal with that. No problem. No more angst, no more anxiety, no more fear, no more defensiveness. Fights and arguments go away forever. And that's the cool thing. Hmm. And it's a three-step process. It's really easy. Totally counterintuitive. I bet you're ready to, to whisper. I'm ready. I'm ready. Lay, lay, it, on. lay it on us. All right. So this is really easy to describe. It takes a little bit of courage to practice, but anybody can master this in four to six weeks if you just practice it. Three-step process. Pro step number one, you're, in, you're confronted with an angry person. It could be a spouse or a partner, girlfriend, boyfriend. It could be somebody at work. It could be a client. And they're angry. Now, they might be angry at you or they might be angry at something else, but they're angry or they're upset. The first thing you're going to do is ignore their words. Ignore those angry words. You've heard it all before. There's no new news here. And when you ignore the angry words, two things happen. Number one, you are much less likely to get triggered yourself. And the idea here is to stay cool and composed and calm in this. So if you ignore the words, you're not going to get triggered. And number two, if you ignore the words, you free up bandwidth in your brain. You free up capacity to do the next two steps. So the first crucial, crucial step is ign just ignore them. They're blown off at you. you just, you're not even listening to them. It's just white noise. Step number two, 
you're going to read their emotions. I call it reading their emotional data fields. Emotions are data, just like numbers on a spreadsheet. And it, and it turns out that our brains are hardwired for reading other people's emotions accurately and quickly, almost without error. This is something that evolved, and I got really interested in this, and I, so I started looking at evolutionary biology. I'll just explain why we can do this so easily. For We've only had language as human beings for, for about 230,000 years. There was, when, when hominids are hominid, or actually they were homo sapien, mastered fire, now the food source completely changed. Now we render protein, meat protein, fats, and with the upsurge in cal caloric intake, our brain case expanded dramatically. And the pharyngeal, and, uh, pharyngeal muscles and nerves that come out of the brain through the polyvagal system that control the larynx and the tongue now became large enough to be able to make more than grunts and proto-language evolved. But for millions of years before that, with all the different species of hominids that have been on promise, they communicated. They just didn't communicate through words. They communicated through emotions. And our brains are hardwired to pick up on the emotions of other people instantly and accurately because survival depended on it. We still have this trait. It's just because our culture is, puts down emotions We've never really allowed this innate trait of ours to open up. And so now the second step is to allow the trait to work. And all you have to do, I'm looking at this angry person. They're fuming at me, spitting at me, really angry. And all I do is quiet my mind, sit in silence, stand in silence. And within seconds, the emotions will start flowing into my head. I'll know exactly what they're feeling. Mm. And that, so that's reading the emotional data fields. It's effortless. If you have to effort at it, you're doing it wrong. You just have to be present. And then the third step, which is the secret sauce, but also the weird part, is that you're going to reflect back mm -hmm. the emotions that come into your head with a you statement. So for example, I say, man, Sean, you are really pissed off. Man, you are really angry. Nobody's listening to you. You feel disrespected. You don't feel appreciated. You're anxious, a little worried. You're sad, and you feel a little humiliated by what happened. You feel betrayed. You don't feel like anybody loves you. You feel completely rejected. And the whole thing just really, really pisses you off. So notice how I only used you statements, told you what you feel. What the science shows, there are brain scanning, there are 17 different brain scanning studies out there now that since 2007, and what they show is when you do what I just exactly did to you, it's called affect, labeling, two amazing things happen in the brain. Number one, the emotional centers of the brain that has caused all this reactivity and are dominating everything, all of a sudden become inhibited. I mean, they just drop like a rock. The neural activity drops like a rock. And at the same time, the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, which is our executive function, comes back online. And so it goes like this. Hmm. And it happens in, like in 30 to 90 seconds. And you cannot help but de-escalate when somebody does this to you because it's the way your brain is hardwired. So the trick to learning how to do this is to, number one, have the courage to use the you statement and tell somebody what they're feeling because we're all conditioned against doing that. Our social conditioning says, no, don't do that. Uh, stay away from emotions. So we have to learn to do that. And, then, and once we start practicing, we watch for four reactions, involuntary reactions. Number one, you're going to get a head nod. In India, they go like this, back and forth. 
<laughs> but cool. it's an affirmative head nod. And then uh, you're going to be looking for some sort of verbal statement like, yeah, or exactly, or damn right, or whatever it might be. Then you're looking to watch for a dropping of the shoulders and an exhalation, a sigh of relief. And basically, you've, you've hit that relaxation response, and they feel so deeply heard that they just let go and totally relax. <laughs> and now you've de-escalated the problem. You've de-escalated. And that's, that's basically how you do it. And the way, you, the way that you practice this is to only practice in super safe, low-risk situations. So I tell my students that take my courses and my coaching, I say, all right, this week you're going to go to Starbucks now that we're post-pandemic. This is a little tough during the pandemic. But now that we're post-pandemic, go to Starbucks. When you walk up to the counter to, <coughs> to give your order to the barista, say something like, wow, you look really happy to be here today. And then immediately mentally put on your lab coat, be the lab experimenter, and observe the result. And you will see, you'll see an amazing thing. You watch this barista smile, light up, and be grateful that you've acknowledged this person's presence. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have to use your, your de-escalation skills going out the door because all the people in the line behind you are going to be pissed off because this barista took so long to tell you their life story. <laughs> But you practice this in really low-risk situations for a couple of weeks until you're confident that it really does work. Because listening to me talk about it is one thing, but going out and making it actually happen is something else. Then you can start introducing it into your relationships and work and stuff like that very slowly. And, and after practicing four to six weeks, you'll eventually, it becomes a self-affirming practice. It feels so good to do it that you'll start doing it unconsciously, and you'll never be bothered by upset again. <laughs> And that's how simple it is. A quick announcement from one of our sponsors and then right back into this episode. This episode is brought to you by BioPro Plus. Hormones are essential for optimal performance. Every year after puberty, your ability to create growth hormone decreases. And it doesn't matter how good your sleep is, how good your diet is, how fit you are. The fact is you can be experiencing chronic fatigue, body fat, low libido, poor sleep just from having your hormones out of whack. That's where BioPro Plus comes in. It's a 100% non-synthetic growth hormone supplement, and it will not shut off your own growth hormone creation, which means that you don't have to be on it forever and ever, like some testosterone replacement therapies. BioPro Plus is the type of product that Olympians have been using for decades and decades, and now it's available to you. All you have to do is go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. I've been using BioPro Plus for about six weeks now, and I feel more like myself than I have in a long time. I'm sleeping better. I have more energy. My mood has enhanced. I know that this product is going to be a game changer for so many people. So go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. I wanted to point, wow, awesome. If you need to go back, pause this, go listen to that again, please do. I'll wait. We'll be here when you come back. That is so, that is so powerful. You know, one thing that I noticed when you gave the example was that you said, uh, when someone's, you know, angry, not right. the, not the Starbucks example, you said you are, you know, frustrated, da, 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 da. And then when you gave the example with the Starbucks, which I know is part of the practice, you said, you look Positive. like you, you look like oh, you're, okay. I'm curious about, cause if, yep. if someone said to me, you're angry, Sean, rather than you seem like you're angry. And that's, I know it's a, it's a tiny little detail, but is, is that the same thing? Cause 
if if you if if you were coming from a place of authority and said you're angry, you're hurt, you are da, 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 rather than you seem angry, you seem hurt. Do you see the the distinction there? Is there Absolutely. is that important? No. Okay. I prefer being more direct, but there are times when you can be a little less direct. The one thing you're not going to do is use an I statement. You're not going to say something like, "Oh, Sean." I think you're really angry, or you seem to me like you're really angry. You never, ever, ever use an I statement. All, all that I statement stuff, active listening, all wrong. No science to support it. Never worked, never has worked, never will work. They still teach it because they don't know any better, but they being psychotherapists and mediator trainers and people like that, but it doesn't work. It's all based on a misunderstanding of the work of Thomas Gordon, a 1950s psychologist who invented the term active listening. Um, but whether you say you are angry, you seem angry, it look, uh, you, know, you look like you're angry, you always want to keep it in an active voice. The moment you go to passive voice, like it seems like you're angry, that's language of disconnection. Mm -hmm. Passive voice is always language of disconnection, where the, where the speaker is not, take, or the listener in this case, is, is not taking responsibility. And that distances you from your speaker. And so you always want to use an active voice because that way there's connection. Mm. Now... So I always prefer to use a more direct word like you are angry or, but you can get away with you seem angry. It you know, looks like you're happy. It looks like you're, you look happy today, but it's always going to be a you statement. Yeah. And, and so any of those phrases are going to work, work. The best, the best is to just be very direct. Hey, you're really happy today. I want to keep, keep yeah, picking so. and probing for people who don't, which is probably most people who don't like being told how they feel or what their emotions they're experiencing, which will keep my wife out of it, but telling <laughs> so, so, right. So don't, don't tell me I'm mad. Don't tell me I'm even okay. if I'm angry. It's like, don't tell me I'm angry. Don't Great. tell me what I am. Don't give me mm -hmm. the, yeah. Yeah. So that's the kind of pushback you might get every night. You, it, it's amazing how little pushback you're going to get, but maybe one out of a hundred times, one out of 50 times, You'll affect label somebody. I'll say, hey, Sean, man, you, you're really pissed off. You say, I'm not pissed off. I'm just frustrated. You know, like that. <laughs> All right. A couple of things are going on. Number one, I don't know about you, Sean, but many people have built these huge walls around them, these invincible walls where inside is the real Doug. And on the outside is what the world sees as Doug. And inside is this weak little six-year-old kid who's extremely frightened and vulnerable and I build up all these walls around me to keep anybody from being able to see who I really am. And by God, I'm not letting anybody in for anything. When you affect label too well, you punch through that wall like a superhero. And the speaker knows it. And what do you think that speaker's reaction is going to be? Fear. Mm. And the fear is going to turn to anger and they say, who the hell do you think you are, my psychotherapist? Or, hey, don't tell me how I feel. So. As I teach my students, whenever you get that reaction, you've just done too good a job. <laughs> Back off. <laughs> Back off. Be a little more subtle. Be a little more subtle. This is all happening at an unconscious level. And so if you make it, if you're too kludgy about it, and you're not sophisticated or as subtle about it, then you're going to blast the wall with 10 tons of tritinol and tritinol and, you know, that your, your speaker is going to be scared to death and lash mm -hmm. out. The second thing that can happen is that if I said, oh, you're really angry, and then you, you yell back, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. Well, obviously they're angry. It's that they're, they're, their emotions are so enmeshed 
inside their brain that they can't process their own emotional experience. And that's what you're really helping them do. You're literally lending your prefrontal cortex to this upset person for the 90 seconds it takes for their prefrontal cortex to come back online. But because they can't access their emotional database, they don't know what they're feeling. So you just back off, you say, oh, you're really frustrated. You feel disrespected and nobody's listening to you and it just really pisses you off. Yeah, I'm really pissed off. <laughs> and they'll come back and finally they'll, they'll, they'll deal with the anger. So don't get, don't get frustrated when it appears that you've made a mistake. You probably haven't. What's going on is that they just haven't processed their emotion. You just need to cycle back to it. Mm. That's the secret. That's great. That's and they great. will. And remember, this is all happening unconsciously. They don't even know what you're doing. You're just reflecting to them what they're experiencing, and the brain processes just take over. And it's amazing. And the other thing that's really cool about this is is once you start engaging in this practice, people can scream and yell at you, and you're calm as a cucumber. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing bothers you. you. They can yell at you all day long. And you're not going to feel hurt. You're not going to feel bothered. You're not going to feel upset. You're just going to say, okay, you're emotional. We're going to help you with this. Let me reflect back your emotions and get your brain back online. <laughs> and that's all you're doing is help them get their brain back online. And the, the secret here, here's the mantra, de-escalate before you problem solve. De-escalate before you, most people problem solve. That just makes things worse. Don't even attempt problem solving until you've got them, people calm down. You ever notice that with your wife? She gets upset or gets angry and you try to, oh dear, if you just do this and whack, yeah. <laughs> you get hammered. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. I mean, she doesn't want a solution. She wants no, to acknowledge. She, she just wants to listen to. She wants, to be, she wants validation. So why not give it to her? It costs you nothing. It costs you nothing. It's, this is a totally costless way of serving other people. It costs you nothing. And it gives everything. The gratitude that you get back from people that a few minutes ago wanted to stab you with a knife is unbelievable. Hmm. You know, we've acid tested this in maximum security prisons over 12 years with the Prison of Peace Project. And um, the stories coming out of the prisons are amazing about how this works. <laughs> so I want to go back even, I want to go back even to step one real quick. And, and, and then I want to go back to something else that just clicked for me. Does this, if you ignore the words, right, that's impossible to do on the internet. You know, it's impossible to do, right, via email or DM or uh, Twitter. Like you just can't, you can't ignore the words because that's all they're, that's all that they, that's all they show. So how does that, how yeah. does that work there? So you've got to put yourself in a, in a place where these are just words and I'm not attaching any meaning to them. And then, and then you affect label back. This is a great trick. For anybody who has a social media presence, and you always get the, the asshole, the jerk, who's sometimes they think they're smarter than you are, sometimes they're just mean, and they say mean stuff in commenting on posts or YouTubes or whatever. All I do is I just affect label them. Oh, you're really angry. You're really frustrated. You don't feel respect. You don't feel heard, and you're really you're really disappointed, and scared and anxious. Never hear from them again. Mm. It completely disarms them. Because they're looking for a fight. And you tell them how they feel, where's the fight? If you try to rationalize, justify, explain, appease, apologize, any of these defensive strategies that people engage in, all it does is gives them, it gives them an anchor to come back and fight. But if you, if you don't give them the fight, then there's nothing to fight about and they disappear. And you don't give them the fight by telling them how they feel. Thank it's, you for allowing me to jump around because... Oh, yeah.
No, it's a great, this is a great strategy for dealing with those problem children on the internet, of which there yeah. are way too many. So what is the distinction, the line between, because you used word like uh, you're in service to them or you're helping them get in touch with their with their emotions. And I believe that. And also, what what is the line between using a skill and strategy to de-escalate between that and manipulation? Great because question. If someone sees through it and like, hey, I know what you're doing. I'm hip to that. Don't do that. Like what I feel now, like you're playing this game on me. Like mm -hmm. what is, how, how do you think of that? That's a great question. And one that my, when Laurel Coffer and I started the Prison of Peace Project in 2010, we used these skills as our foundational skills. And that was something we were deeply worried about. Are we going into a, we, and we're not, neither one of us has ever been worked with a prison population before. And are we going to be teaching these people powerful skills that they can use to manipulate others. And what we learned was that you can't. If you aren't heart-centered when you do this, it won't work. Mm. People, will, people will see it a mile away. So you have, to, you have to really want to listen. You have to really want to help somebody calm down. Sometimes you'll get people, oh, I know what you're doing, don't use that stuff on me. But this goes back to what I was saying before. Why are people that defensive because you're, you blasted through their wall of defensiveness and you see them for who they really are and they're frightened by it. It scares them. They don't want to be that intimate. They don't want to be that close. They don't want to be that vulnerable. They don't want to be seen for who they really are because they're so emotionally wounded. And so you will see that occasionally. But you persist in doing it. Now, I mean, my wife and I use these skills and we're both highly skilled in this in the use of this work. She uses it in her counseling and therapy practice. I use it in as a peacemaker. And she'll say, Oh, you're really frustrated. And I say, Yeah, I'm really frustrated. And I know she's doing it, but I'm I appreciate the fact that she's helping me. You're laughing. Yeah. <laughs> How healthy, man. That's just so healthy. It is. Uh, so mature. It's, you know, it's the only way to be in a relationship. I'm laughing. I'm laughing because that it's such a, it's it for you. It's, it's like riding a bike, you know, it's, you don't have to work for it. It's just like, no, we just respect each other and we use these techniques and, um, and it's productive and peaceful and nice. So of course, and, and I'm laughing because, you know, my wife and I do the same thing and you're right. If you say with just a hint to someone who's, who's frustrated with you, do with just a hint of sarcasm or just a hint of, uh, of, um, you know, patronization of like, you're angry, you're upset, right? You, you're, you don't feel heard right now. Like, and that's exaggerated, but even to you that extent, that. yeah. And that's not coming from the heart. And here's the other thing. Why do we do that? Why do we, why do we use sarcasm? Why do we use put downs? Why do we emotionally invalidate? Oh, it's not, it's not just, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. That's a form all these emotionally invalidate. It's because we're soothing our own anxiety around the other person's upset. So it's very, very selfish. And we do this unconsciously because it was what is what we were taught by our, our parents. And it turns out to be one of the most insidious and pervasive forms of emotional abuse that exists. Mm. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Remember when you were two years old, you got running around, you fell down and skinned your knee. What happened? And you started to cry. What were you told? You're okay. Oh, you were, you were told more than that. 
Yeah, you're okay. Don't cry. Be a big boy. Big boys, be a manly man. Big boys don't cry. Don't be a sissy. Don't be a girly girl. My girl's got it the same way, but the other way around. You're being told not to feel the feelings you, you've had. And you were fed that diet of emotional invalidation. Every time you had an emotion, it was invalidated by your parents because they wanted to, quote, toughen you up. What they were doing is destroying the emotional centers of your brain. The science is very clear on this now, which is why I say 98% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional, because they destroy the emotions of their children. They do not allow their children to develop into emotionally mature human beings, which is why they're so screwed up. And, and so they emotionally invalidate. And then we get into adulthood, and we start getting into emotional situations, either with our partner or spouse or children, and what do we immediately do? We put them down because it's our own anxiety around their emotion. It's as if my brain is saying, stop being emotional because when you're emotional, I'm anxious because I'm not sufficiently self-aware to manage my own anxiety, so I want you to stop doing what you're doing and feeling what you're feeling so I can feel better about myself. And that's what's going on. And it's extremely selfish. It's all unconscious. And it's also extremely harmful. Mm. There, uh, there's some amazing science out there that shows how this emotional invalidation destroys, destroys the human brain. And yet everybody does it. Because they don't know yeah. anything. Whoo, that's a lot. That's a it lot is. to absorb. It is. And parents have to learn how to become emotional coaches, not disciplinarians. You never ever discipline a child until you've de-escalated them. Discipline is just a problem-solving strategy. Don't discipline until you calm your child down. Then the, the learning moment will take, you'll have a good learning moment there, teachable moment. You can't teach a child who's screaming and yelling. You've got to calm them down. And people, my students who have learned these techniques, who have young children, report that even with two and three-year-olds, they have to label them for four, three, four, five, six months, and the tantrums go away forever. Mm-hmm. And the studies show, all the studies show, that you start affect labeling young children, four, five, six years old. By the time they're nine or ten, they're two grade levels ahead of their peers. Wow. This is all about brain development. There's no psychobabble here at all, Sean. This is all hard science. It's how our brains are designed to grow. Wow. And I wouldn't be sitting here talking about it if there was anything else out, out there that worked. But I get paid as a peacemaker and mediator, big dollars to walk into a family business conflict or a corporate dispute or a community dispute where people would rather shoot each other or a congregational dispute where people would rather shoot each other with AK-47s than talk. They're so angry. I have to have stuff that works first time, every time without fail. And this stuff does. Because what, here's, here's the science behind it. We start learning, we're not born with emotions. This is a, there are so many myths, bad information out there. We're not born with emotions. We create emotions. Emotions are cognitive constructs. We start creating emotions at about 18 months of age. That's about the time when the, the, uh, the emotional centers of the brain start to mature. They start to come online. Up until then, it's all, it's all what's known as affect. I won't go into all that hard science. But, so basically, what, we, what our task is as a two-year-old, as a toddler, about the time we start to verbalize, is to take all this, these feelings we've experienced, these, these affective experiences. There are nine basic affects and we take these, that we're born with. And we have to take all these different affects, like a palette, an artist's palette, and start associating words with the different kinds of affective experiences we're having. And that's called an emotional database. When we build this emotional database and we get upset, 
as soon as we can start feeling the upset, our prefrontal cortex is able to pull out of the, oh, I'm experiencing X. I'm, I'm, I'm angry right now or I'm irritated. And as soon as the prefrontal cortex can isolate and label the experience, everything calms down. But if as a child we're not taught how to build a, a really deep emotional database because we're constantly emotionally invalidated, we're left with some very primal emotions, no way to express ourselves in, with any kind of granularity. And the prefrontal cortex gets overwhelmed, and then we're into reactive programming that we learned as very small children, and we can't think anymore. So what parents have to do is teach their children how to be emotionally competent, which is really hard because parents aren't emotionally competent themselves. Mm -hmm. But that's how we break the cycle. And I mean, I've seen this. I've, I've worked with over 20,000 people in prison serving life sentences. And I see the same cycle over and over and over again of how they got to prison. Murderers are not born, they're bred. And, and you know, they grew up in horrible, horrible, horribly dysfunctional families. And so they did horribly dysfunctional things. Mm -hmm. And that's because their brains weren't wired properly. This, this seems to me like a, either the entirety of developing emotional intelligence or a the the spine from which all other emotional intelligence sort of develops from how do you def, how do you define emotional intelligence well first of all emotional intelligence is a test so you can't grow emotional you can't learn emotional intelligence just like you can't learn IQ right stanford binet test it was uh, emotional intelligence was a term coined by um, Solovers and Meyer jack jack Slovy and John Meyer, uh, back in the 1990s. Dan Daniel Goleman made a big, made, has made buckets of money out of it. He took their work and completely mischaracterized it and then wrote his books, and now he's got a huge industry all around emotional intelligence. I prefer to talk about emotional competency. <coughs> you can't learn emotional intelligence, but you can learn emotional competency. And emotional competency comes down to three basic skills. Emotional self-awareness, what am I feeling and experiencing? Emotional self-regulation, what do I want to do about the fact that I'm really angry right now? Am I going to be reactive or am I going to make a choice? That's emotional self-regulation. And the last is empathy, cognitive and affective empathy. What I've learned, affect labeling is cognitive empathy. When you label somebody else's emotions, you're actually reading their emotional data field and telling them what they're feeling. That is a form of cognitive empathy. And what I've learned over the years is that when you start practicing affect labeling, you start reading other people's emotions and reflecting back, that builds, grows your own emotional self-awareness and your own emotional self-regulation. So the way that I tell people to increase their emotional intelligence, if they want to score high on an emotional intelligence assessment, is learn how to affect label and practice it. Because that will automatically, without effort, build your own emotional self-awareness and your own self-regulation, and you'll score off the roof with emotional intelligence tests. Completely different than any other kind of emotional intelligence training I've seen out there. The other thing I'll say about emotional intelligence, because you're going to get me on my horse now, is that uh, most people who teach emotional intelligence are not emotionally intelligent themselves. Yeah. They're just trainers. Yeah. How, can you, how can you teach something you don't do? And also, most, most emotional intelligence courses do not teach you any skills. They just tell you what it is and what you should do. 
but don't give you any skills that really work. I mean, I, I, re I follow this stuff, and you know, so I'll see something on Medium, for example. Some psychologists will come in and say, well, if you're really upset, you've got to take a bunch of deep breaths. Well, taking deep breaths does re help the polyvagal system calm down, but it takes a long time. And we need something that works right now, fast, 90 seconds at the most. And most of these people are clueless about these skills. They're clueless. You're blowing my mind here, Doug. Holy cow. You're not the first person on the podcast that said that, Sean. <laughs> everyone listening, I, everyone listening is going, oh, my God, I need to rethink what I'm doing here. Oh, I'm just, I, 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 I'm reactive. I'm not responsive. I'm not watching myself. I'm not okay. trying these, you know, I'm not, you know. Let, let's, let's, let's back up. Let's not beat ourselves up. Okay, everybody, everybody's listening. Don't beat yourself up. This is all new information. I developed this strategy in 2005. The first brain scanning study wasn't until 2007. It hasn't even been 15 years yet. I wrote a book in 2017 that was a bestseller, but one guy is not enough to spread the word. Don't beat yourself up. What you should do and what, the, what you should consider at this point in time, what you might consider doing is now... I understand that there, there, there's a different way of looking at this that this guy Doug Knoll is talking about. Maybe I should learn more about what this is all about and start educating myself and seeing whether or not what he says is correct. Because I always tell everybody, don't ever believe the great Doug Knoll. Until you go out and do it yourself, you won't really understand it. So sure, it's, it seems overwhelming, but it's really simple to apply. Three mm -hmm. steps, ignore the words, read the emotions, reflect back the emotions with the use statement. How simple is that? <laughs> Not quite that simple, but that's really what the steps are. Just yeah, go out yeah. and start practice, practice, just practice, play around with it and see what happens. And when you do that, I will guarantee you, your life will change forever in the most amazing way that you can possibly imagine. You end all fights and arguments in your life forever. You will never have another fight or argument ever once you learn these skills and you master them, ever. Doesn't matter what anybody says to you. What would that be like? No more fights and arguments. Yeah. Gone. Yeah, I mean, it has to be road tested. It can't just be theoretical. You can't just, yeah, can't right. just hear it, read a book. You can't just listen to a podcast and go, cool, I get it. I'm good. No, you have to go, you have no, to go try this. And it helps, you know, like everything else, you're a coach, I'm a coach. It helps to get coaching on this. It's not essential. But it's helpful uh, because, you know, if you really t if you really dive into this thing and for four to six weeks, uh, you know, you come into a coaching session once a week, what happened? How'd it go? What worked? What didn't work? You know, you get that support and knowledge from somebody who's been there uh, to help you to help you grow along. That helps a lot. Of course, it's a lot more expensive, though, and a lot of people can't afford that coaching. So buy the book. Go on to my YouTube channel. You know, I got a bunch of YouTubes on this stuff. Um, Go to my website. I, I mean, there's a lot of resources out there. The less you pay, the more you have to do the work yourself. The more you pay, the more help you get, just like mm -hmm. in anything else, right? And so if you want to learn this quickly and great, then, you know, you get coaching. If you are a DIYer and can't afford a lot of money and can pay 15 or 16 bucks for the book and, you know, 200 bucks for the video course and, you know, do it on your own. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing is not to be overwhelmed. It's to say, hey, this resonates with me. I want to change. I want to learn. Yeah. That's what I'm all about.
when, if ever, is it okay to allow things to escalate? Oh, good question. That is always the conundrum of the peacemaker. <laughs> I bet. Because, because sometimes the timing isn't right. And so you have to let things escalate and you have to let things get a little crazy. It depends, it's always contextual, it always depends on the, on the conflict and what's involved. But uh, sometimes, especially when there are really severe power imbalances in a relationship, any kind of relationship, sometimes you have to allow things to escalate so that the person with a higher power is gonna pay attention. Mm. And you, know, you have to allow things to get hairy to get the attention of the, of the people who, can, who, who have the power to make a decision to change institutions, organizations, policies, whatever. Uh, the, the problem with that is, and I've seen this over and over again, is people become advocates for change. And once they get the attention of the people in power who can, who can instigate policies that change, they, the, the advocates, they're so zealous, they've so identified with their cause that they can't negotiate. And the cause takes on a sacred value <coughs> that they can't compromise on. And, and any policy change requires compromise. So I found that people who are protesters, nonviolent protesters, for example, or Black Lives Matter, or pick any movement, um, are really great at stirring up attention and getting the media to focus on stuff. But when it comes to actually solving the problem, they're horrible at it. They're horrible at it because they just can't. They've gotten everybody's attention, but now they can't compromise. <laughs> they don't know how to negotiate. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You got my attention. We're all listening. What's the plan? And then it's <laughs> like crickets, right? Exactly. So there are times when you have to let things escalate. Now, in interpersonal relationships, you should never let an argument or a fight escalate. There is no purpose served in a personal relationship. And that, by personal, I mean interpersonal could be friendship, intimate, it could be a business relationship. There's never a reason to allow that to escalate. You should calm people down as soon as you can and then go to problem solving hmm. and figure out what's what's really going on. Yeah. Well, that's a nice lead into the next question. Like, what does disagree, how, how do how do we disagree productively? Like, uh, does it does it immediately get into a negotiation where both sides want what they want? Or is there a... Uh, is there are there times in one's life in any sort of relationship where we can disagree? Because and, and I'm gonna get on my soapbox for a second. You know, um, the I think the answer to wrong speech, wrong whatever that your definition is of wrong is is more speech is is additional ideas that can be figured out, thought through, talked through to some reasonable outcome. And we don't have to get into Elon Musk taking over Twitter and the free speech. <laughs> and stuff. I mean, but but it, it it's it's super relevant right now because you know um, it's it's on everybody's mind. And so what I believe is that in order to get anywhere, you have to be willing to talk. You have to be willing to communicate, and you're gonna disagree. So how do you disagree productively? Okay, great question. It. Again, it's, it, it's all context and what you're trying to do. There are a whole bunch of different tools that people like me master for dealing with situations where there's disagreement. 
So let's take, um, I'll just give you some examples. Let's take decision, there are four, four types of decision making. So let's suppose you've got disagreements in a group and the group has, there has to be a decision made. The first kind of decision making is autocratic. That's where the leader of the group has the power to make the decision and will make a decision. And whether you like it or not, too bad. That's pretty good in emergencies. Uh, when an emergency decision has to be made, but if people feel excluded from the decision making process, they're not going to be happy. The second type of decision making process is where, where it's, cons it's um, what we would call consensual uh, consent, it's uh, advising consent decision making. This is where the leader, there's a leader of the group, but he, want, he or she wants the advice of the group. And so everybody has an opportunity to, to speak, but the decision is still going to be with the, with the leader. And there might be disagreement with that, but at least everybody's had a chance to speak. The third type of decision making is what we call democratic decision making. And this is where everybody in the group has the power to make the decision, and typically it's majority rule. And that works when, when the minority will agree and abide by the decision of the majority. When the minority will not agree or abide by the decision of the majority, as we have seen in multiple cases here in the United States in poli our political arena, then we no longer have democracy. We have something else. And the last des decision-making process, which is the most misunderstood, is called consensus. This was developed by the, Qu the Quakers, the Friends. And what consensus decision-making is, uh, there are two requirements to a consensus. Number one, everybody in the group has spoke to, on the issue, even the introverts. Everybody has been required to speak. And number two, nobody has a principled objection to the proposed decision. And by principled objection, it means that they can't e explain how the decision is going to violate some value, either personal value of somebody in the group or a value of, of, of the group itself. So it's principled. If we're, if, we're in a, if we're talking about what color we're going to paint the conference room and the group decides that it wants to paint it psychedelic purple, just the fact that you don't like psychedelic purple and you think that's a really bad aesthetic choice, unless it fundamentally uh, deviates from a, a value of the group or an individual, then there's no objection. You can't object. And the consensus is reached. Most people think consensus decision-making is unanimous, but it's not. It's no, there's no principled objection. And everybody's had an opportunity to, to talk. So that's one way you deal with disagreements, thinking about which decision-making process are you going to use. The second way is when you've got disagreement, sometimes it's a, it's a problem that needs to be negotiated. And there are two types of negotiation. Uh, one is called distributive negotiation, where you're splitting up a pie. You know, you've got a fixed resource, and you've got to decide how that resource is going to be allocated. The other way to negotiate is what's known as is, um, interest-based negotiation. And in interest-based negotiation, you look to expand the possibilities by looking at what are the underlying interests that everybody has and then seeing if you can satisfy those underlying interests. And when, you do, when you're able to satisfy the underlying interests, the disagreement goes away because everybody really gets what they're really looking for. What happens is, however, is people get focused on their position. I want X. And then it becomes, it, it looks like it's a distributive battle 
to who's going to make the least number of concessions in order to get to act. Sometimes that's effective, but in interpersonal relationships, it's almost never effective. And so you use an interest-based process. And typically, you can find that in an interest-based process, you can deal with disagreements much more effectively. A third broad way of dealing with disagreement is through what we've been talking about, which is how to listen. So for example, how, how to have a calm conversation with the politically polarized. So it's a four-step process. And in this process, you're not seeking agreement at all. What you're seeking is understanding. So in step number one, I'm going to ask this politically polarized person, Uncle Charlie, who's crazy as a loom bug, right? And I said, Charlie, tell me about all the things that happened in your life that led you to the beliefs that you have today. And hopefully, I'm going to get him to start telling me stories. And I'm going to ethic label him. Oh, that made you really happy, or that made you really sad, or you got really angry, or whatever. I'll ethic label him through that. When he's done with that, I'll ask him a second question. So Charlie, how, does that, how do these beliefs help you navigate and make decisions in your everyday life? How do they help you in your everyday life? Most people have never thought about this before. Mm -hmm. And most people will realize their beliefs don't help them. When you don't say that to them. You don't argue with them. You just get them to think about it and talk about it. Then the third question is, how do you deal with people who have beliefs that are different than yours? And the first snarky comment is, of course, I get my gun out and shoot them. Uh, but you get past that, and you say, no, 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 really. How do you deal with people who, who you really disagree with? And they get thinking about that, and you ethic label them. Ethic label again. And then the last question, which is really the killer, is, all right, how should our society be organized when there are so many polarized beliefs? How should we organize ourselves as a society to deal with all of the, the angst and the anxiety and the anger that comes up with all of these different kinds of beliefs? How should we be organized? What should we do about that? And that gets them to be thinking about, gee, what kind of a society do I want to live in? And if you ask those four questions and you are only interested in listening and reflecting and not trying to argue or prove yourself right or prove them wrong, you can still disagree, but what you will find is that you have much, much more common ground than, than you ever thought possible. And you'll both realize that you've been bamboozled by the media and the political culture that wants to tribalize and divide because it's to their benefit for you to do that. And, and you'll find common ground. You won't agree on everything, but you'll agree on a lot more than you think. Hmm. And that's how we find peace. Wow. Man, again, pause, go back. Listen to all of that again. We'll be here for you when you come back, dear, dear listener. But that is, I, I, I'm just, I mean, obviously this is your, this is your work, and uh, but I'm struck by the clarity. I'm struck by the, hey, it's a four-step process. Hey, it's a three-step process. Like, don't overcomplicate it. Follow the plan. Understand these uh, core awarenesses. You know, I can't help but, but but be curious about your political leanings, and and you can say pass if you want to. Oh, I'm a. I'm a middle-of-the-road independent. Okay. I am a fiscal conservative, a social, socially more liberal. And, and the poor people that, that go to the extremes, whether you're a progressive or, or conservative, you're just being used by the people on that side of the platform, on your side of the platform, to get money so they can get elected and protecting their own power, position, and privilege. You're just being used. There's nothing that any of those people are doing that are helping you. And the moment you begin to realize that, you, hopefully you make a decision to come into the messy middle where it is confusing and it's not clear and it's not, but it's, and it's messy, 
But in the messy middle is where the stuff gets done, where we can help each other, not out on the fringes. Yeah, it's more comfortable out there because we like to say Joe Biden, go Brandon, or you know Trump's an idiot, or whatever, whatever your police. It's it's more comfortable to do that, but nothing gets done. And the Russians and the and the, and the Chinese are going to kill us <laughs> when we do that. We want to protect ourselves. We got to come to the messy middle and tolerate the stress, tolerate the anxiety, tolerate the disagreements, and come to compromise. That's what we have to do as a country. That vision of the middle makes sense to me. <laughs> like. That seems pretty reasonable. That seems pretty logical. That seems and it's not logical and it's not reasonable. It's very emotional. <laughs> we have to deal with the emotion. We have to deal with the anxiety of, of being uncertain about what's going to happen. And people don't want to do that because it's too uncomfortable, because they're not emotionally competent. It sounds. Let me let me rephrase that. <laughs> As the fringes become further and further out, the 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 messy middle, the emotional middle, the the, the heavy lifting of long, thoughtful conversations become rarer and rarer and harder and harder to work through and, and, and be productive there. Because if you're not way over there or way over there, it's people don't have the time or, or don't make the time to be, uh, to be okay with that, with the messy emotional middle. It's much more difficult to be in the middle. It's much more uncomfortable, but that's where the work is. And people go to the extremes and they're, and they're led to the extremes by people who would rather lead them into hell than lead them to a higher, their best higher selves because the people they're doing and leading only protect their power, position, and privilege by doing that. And yeah. you just have to understand the political leaders are interested in only one thing, power. That's all they're interested in is just power, their own power, their own self-aggrandizement. It doesn't matter where they are. And, and that means they're taking power away from you. So how do you, how do you combat that? You go to the messy middle. Find people you disagree with and sit down and talk with them. Is that a book yet, The Messy Middle? No. It should be. <laughs> I've done four books. I don't know if I want to do any more. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell, tell, me about, tell me about this latest book and, and the yes, cool. segue there. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me about what people can expect from it. So de-escalate basically lays out, it was my thinking in 2017, obviously my thinking has moved since 2017, here we are, uh, what, five years later. Um, so this book came about as, at a request of all the, my incarcerated students, many hundreds of them, thousands of them, who said, could you read, please write a book about what you're teaching us so that we can share it with our families. So I said, oh, okay. Wasn't planning on writing a book, but I did. So what I do in the first three chapters is, is uh, I outline the science and the practice, the discovery, how I discovered it, what the science is and how it works. And then all the chapters after that, I go through the arc of life. And I start out with uh, how do you have a, what do you do, how do you raise small children using APIC labeling? And then I go to teenagers. And then I go to um, dating and romantic relationships. And then how do, we, how do we use APIC labeling in schools as teachers for classroom control? How do we use ethic labeling in, the, in a business and professional environment? How do we use it in our marriages, our intimate relationships? And then how do we use it in political discourse? And how do we have a calm conversation with the politically polarized? And how do we, and then the last chapter, which is kind of out there is, you want to experience transcendence, the, the idea of being one with the universe through this practice. Because when you do this, you, you become egoless for about 30 seconds. And it's a really phenomenal 
physical, mental, emotional experience. All of a sudden, you, your ego just disappears and you're totally focused on the person you're listening to. So it becomes a spiritual practice as well. Mm. And so that's what the book is all about. It's an easy read. Before I wrote the book, I'll just, I haven't ever told this to anybody before. Um, before I wrote the book, I did a complete critical analysis of Malcolm Gladwell's work. I read all ah. his books. And I, I analyzed it. I analyzed his writing to see how, what, how did he structure his books and what did he do. And actually, every single one of his books comes down to one simple idea that he then tells stories around. Mm -hmm. And so I, I learned a lot from that analysis. I think I read, I don't know how many books, yeah, six or seven. And I read them all and, at very di and I wasn't reading for content, I was reading for structure. So I wrote my book that way to make it accessible. One, it had to be, you had to read it from a flight to LA to New York, four to five hours. Two, it had to be accessible. And two, it had to have a lot of value, a lot of information. And so, that, so that's why I wrote it. And the book is published by Simon & Schuster, Beyond Woods, Atriot, Simon & Schuster. It's available anywhere. It was an Amazon bestseller for a while. It still does very well. I still get nice royalty checks. Yeah. And yeah, you can get the book off my website or at Amazon, wherever you want. I mean, um, I just have a couple more questions. And I, I got to tell you, uh, I'm so grateful for this conversation and for your wisdom welcome. here. You know, I, I've, I've learned a ton in, in this time with you. And, and, you know, I promised you before we turned the mics on that I was going to ask questions that were a little bit different from some of the other podcasts. Hopefully I've delivered on that. What's your mission? Big picture. I want to teach as many people as I possibly can to be emotionally competent through this process of affect labeling and deep emotional listening. I want to teach as many people as I can to take up this work after me. I want to mainstream these ideas so that we are no longer emotionally invalidating our children. We know how to listen to people who are politically polarized. We know how to get into the messy middle and do the hard work that has to be done there. And right now I'm doing this one person at a time. I teach a person, that now they, they become a ripple in a pond. And eventually I want all these ripples of peace to flow out over the world. And I do, that's why I do these podcasts. It's, you know, it's an opportunity to get out and sometimes there's only two, two, two downloads. Sometimes there are 10,000 downloads. You never know. But the more I do, the more I spend my time you know, in this in this process, the more likely it is that somebody's going to either reach out to me, want me to teach a group, they'll get buy the book, you know, read the book, go to my website, study all the blogs and articles and resources I have, my, and and they'll take it up, and they'll, and hopefully I'm, have, I, I I create enough of a resonance with people that say, wow, I'd really like to be able to do that, and they'll learn it. Mm -hmm. So that's really my mission, and fundamentally, my mission is to serve humanity, mm -hmm. and this is the way that I do it. One of the many ways I do it, but this is primary. Wonderful. I'm going to ask another personal question just because I'm, I'm fascinated by, <laughs> by the ideas, by the wisdom. Um, are you, are you a, a spiritual or religious person? Oh, such an interesting question. I have a deep spiritual part of my life. But what's really interesting is that from about the mid-1980s, until I finished my master's degree. I was very inward. Did a lot of meditation, studied Arhatic Yoga, um, studied religion. That was part of my peacemaking studies, study the seven major religions of the world and really understand them. And 
I realized that being inward was great and developed, it helped me self-develop a lot. But after I, be, after I left the practice of law and became a peacemaker, it now became my, my spiritual practice is now outward, serving others. And so every day, I get, I have, my every day is a spiritual practice because I serve humanity in whatever way, whether it's having a conversation with you and your audience or, you know, making a YouTube video and talking about whatever it is I'm talking about or doing a LinkedIn post, you know, whatever it is, it's outward work. It, and now I'm sure that I'm 71 years old. I'm sure that as I get older, uh, I'll go inward again. But right now, my spiritual practice is outward. So it's a cycle. Really interesting. Where would you direct people to go online? You've already give us, given us some of the yeah. some stuff. CEO, optimal Performance. There's a, there's a dash there. Uh, Doug Noll, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L dot C-O. This is a bit.ly link. And, and I do the bit.ly link. It's just easier than the long mm-hmm. link it would be. Uh, optimal Performance, the podcast name. Optimal dash performance. And when you go there... Uh, after you read all the effusive praises that I've given Sean, <laughs> which are well deserved, uh, four offerings. One is a free ebook, which basically describes what, what I've talked about today about how to de escalate. So, email address, get the ebook, uh, fair, fair exchange. Uh, you can also buy my book off my website. I fulfill through Amazon, so it's like 15 or 16 bucks. Uh, so you can get the book Deescalate: How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. You can get my a video course I've created called uh, the, the Deescalate Video Course, $198, and it will teach you everything you need to know about how to deescalate. So for the DIYers, it's perfect. And then if you really want to invest and go deep, I've created a very comprehensive course, two courses on emotional competency, basic emotional competency and advanced emotional competency. I give a $800 discount to your audience, to listeners on that page so but it's more expensive it's not for everybody but it but but if you really resonate with this stuff and really want to go for it um you can do those courses and of course you can reach out to me at my email address doug at dougnull.com i'm happy to chat with you i'm a one-man guy i don't have a huge organization it's just me <laughs> you t- what you see is what you get <laughs> so i answer all my own emails I answer my t- own telephone uh and i'm very responsive to anybody who's got a question or is interested in learning more about my work or the prison of peace work. Thank you so much. And thank you for extending those offers to the listeners. I'm inspired by the vision, the mission, the tactics, the strategies, the, the, the concepts. It's sure seems productive, sure seems progressive. I I absolutely love it. Um, The last question that I have is a fill in the blank and uh, specifically to catch people off guard. And uh, you can elaborate as much or as little as you wish, but please fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing how to listen other people into existence. Because when you validate other people and make them feel heard, you are giving them the gift that no one else can give other than you. And you will change their lives and your lives forever. And it costs you nothing to do it. It costs you nothing. Doug Knoll, thank you so much for joining me today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. You're welcome, Sean. Great conversation. Great questions. Thank you. I mean, holy smokes, you guys. Wow. Doug Knoll, what a wealth of information in this episode. You know, 
there are so many tools in here that this is the type of episode that you probably want to go back to and listen to a couple of times because if you didn't take notes in the first run or you were driving or whatever, there are things in here that if you start doing right away, your life is going to improve. And I've already started doing it at my house with people that I know, my family, and it really works. It works so well. And I think one of the key things to this is in order to make this work effectively, you have to like really open up your heart. And it doesn't take long, but if you drop your judgments and just listen and feel into what the other person is feeling when they're frustrated, it, it, it immediately, immediately you get it. I mean, I can't overstate the importance of stuff like this because performance is not just your metabolic flexibility or the ability to build lean muscle or sleep. It is also communication. We live in a world with other people and we need tools and skills like this to help us live a, a happy life. And it takes practice. So I encourage each of you to go start experimenting with this, this affect mirroring, and watch it work. Watch how people connect with you. See, watch how they observe you. Watch how they open up to you. It is really, really incredible. Uh, I just want to say thank you for listening to this podcast and to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe. Click that subscribe button. Share this with your friends and don't miss an episode. You know, a lot of folks you know, check in a couple of times a week to see if there's new episodes. Well, if you subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to, you'll get that notification. And my goal is always to just bring intense, incredible value every single week, sometimes twice. Thank you, everybody. I really appreciate it again, and I will see you on the internet.